Oh, I am so excited for this, for all you wonderful people out there listening. There are a few occasions on one's fashion reporting journey when you get all a bit giddy with the company that you're keeping, that of icons and the conversation you're about to have. Now, to everyone listening to our incredible series, Personal Threads, you are in for a treat as I sit here interviewing fashion royalty Dame Zandra Rhodes. In way of her introduction, there is just so much to say, but I'll keep it top line so that we hear from the lady herself. This iconic British designer, Dame Zandra Rhodes, launched her eponymous fashion brand 55 years ago and of course is known for her bold prints and vibrant technicolour designs which resonated then and still today for so many many reasons and one of them being joy and a sense of celebration of colour and a positivity tonic for us all. Now Rhodes indeed was one of the new wave of British designers who put London at the forefront of the international fashion scene in the 1970s. Her designs are considered clear, creative statements, dramatic but graceful, audacious but feminine, and indeed very much a fine piece of art. Nicknamed the Princess of Punk, Rhodes rewrote the fashion landscape of her time and won over a generation and grabbed the attention of many clients in the public eye, including Diana, Princess of Wales, Freddie Mercury, Bianca Jagger, Debbie Harry, and of course the legendary Divine. Basically talents that absolutely needed to make an impact with what they were wearing and to be remembered. With her own distinctive look of theatrical makeup and her trademark bob dyed hot pink in the 80s, she is the embodiment of her label's designs, larger than life and impossible to ignore. Originally coined for having two extreme designs in the early 70s, Zandra left England to try to break America and within a few weeks of being in New York, she met the legend that was Diana Freeland of Vogue who adored her and her work, totally got it and had her debut the Knitted Circle collection of photographs using Natalie Wood as the model and she was off and the rest is history, enjoying many, many years at the top of her game and is absolutely Absolutely an institution in British fashion. In 2003, Zandra founded London's Fashion and Textile Museum to promote the British contemporary fashion industries. And to this day, the museum showcases some of the very best in textile and fashion design, such as Anna Sui, Kay Fassett and Andy Warhol. An eponymous pioneer of the British and international fashion scene since the late 60s, Sandra's career has seen her produce over five decades of fashion collections and more recently focused on strategic collaborations with luxury fashion and lifestyle brands. Sandra's notoriety as a print designer combined with an affinity of colour and fine fabrics has resulted in a signature aesthetic that will continue to stand the test of time and bring happiness to us all the world over. And Sandra continues to work full-time out of her Bermondsey studio here in London. I know we're going to learn so much from you here today, Sandra. What a massive <laughs> honour to have you with us. How are you? It's wonderful to be here, thank you. And I just need to reiterate to everybody that we have the pink hair in full force and we were quite pleased that we've got a full face of makeup on because we're actually also recording video. Oh, I always wear makeup and jewellery. <laughs> do you really? Is it like, I read somewhere that you were saying that you actually go to sleep with the makeup on oh, and I then do. reapply. I don't bother to take it off. <laughs> I just wash my face in the morning. <laughs> Now, I've had the joy of interviewing you a few times over the years, but this opportunity to have this sort of deeper dive, I mean, we've got a podcast, we've got a good bit of time together, um, it is a gigantic privilege. And it feels very much that this sort of Zandra magic 
is all over the place. I feel like every time I'm picking up some new piece of consumer titles or broadsheets or whatever, there's Zandra <laughs> again. So do you feel that we're almost in a time where sort of bold positivity and self-expression are really needed in fashion? Generally, people are crying out for it. Although what does surprise me is when I walk along a street, I try and count how many people are in a colour and not in grey Black yeah. or navy blue, sometimes white. Yes. You know, and I'm quite amazed at how few people have other colours and yet colours don't get dirtier any quicker than anything else. Well, exactly, but also, like, just the power of colour. I mean, you really understand the intrinsic power of transformative sort of positivity and the kind of reaction you have from amazing palettes of colour. I think it makes you feel good. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? I don't want to look at myself in a grey T-shirt. <laughs> no, thank you. None of that. None of that. Well, you are the embodiment colour. You're sort of charging it on. Just really interested, when we go back to the early days of Sandra, growing up in Chatham in Kent, who was around? Like, paint the picture a little bit well, for us. Well, first of all, I had a very, very exotic mother. She was so exotic that... When it was a school open day, I'd say, please don't come looking too extreme because you look different from all the other mothers. When I, when I think about it now, it's so what funny. What was she wearing then? Oh, she'd have had a wonderful hat and she'd have been in great platform shoes with, with ankle straps. I mean, she taught dressmaking and pattern making at the college that I eventually went to, although yes. I didn't study dressmaking. But she always looked wonderful and I've got this lovely picture of her in embroidered um, 50s dress with, with with all sort of flowing skirt and she always looked amazing. But where did that come from? Where was she getting her style from? Was You know, in Chatham in Kent in, in those days in the 60s. What... Well, before she married, she took herself to Paris and worked as a, a pattern cutter right. in Worth in Paris. So she was always very exotic and there are pictures of her with flowers in her hair and and she always wore lots of makeup and everything and looked different from every other mother going. <laughs> um, when you think of these sort of early memories of textile, maybe whether it was sort of fabrics in your drawing room at home or certain chairs, or do, does anything come to life in the, in the way of the, the memory bank, I guess? Well, she loved going around the market. There was a market on Fridays in Rochester and she got, and all the salespeople knew her so she'd buy all these bits of lovely coloured fabric whether it was a I had a lovely blue seersucker skirt with fish all over it wow. I remember that you know what I mean and of course she could make it all and she could make I mean, it only when you're talking to me now do I realise yeah, she was like she was the most exotic person in the Medway towns, probably. Well, absolutely, and for you I mean? to have had that as your mother, and, your main reference I mean, point. M as a child, you go, "Oh, you look different from all the other mothers." <laughs> I mean, you'd never say amazing. that now. I wouldn't say that now. No. <laughs> I mean, you know, but also that sort of world that you were living in. I mean, I look back when I was really young. I was sort of obsessed with playing with my dolls, and I would cut up pieces of fabric and make little skirts, and I'd bleach their hair, and I'd paint designs on the fabric. <laughs> I got really into it and it was sort of my go-to. They were all kept in a big bin bag in my yeah. ottoman. But what, what were you doing? How were you sort of... I was always drawing. Always I was drawing. always painting and drawing. Um, did a tiny bit of sewing, but not really. I was always drawing drawing plants and, and going out. And then when eventually, first of all, when I did art at school, I'd go and draw a local church and, and all sorts of things like that. So I was always drawing what I saw. And what were you using to draw? 
what was those your... days it would have been pencil, it could have been charcoal. And, yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. But art, I was always the, I don't want to say easy class, but that was the one where I didn't Well, you really excelled prob- at it, didn't yes, you? Yes, so I didn't have a problem with all of that. And you were quite academic at school. You kind of applied yourself fully. I would say I was, I was thinking of myself as very boring and... Um, <laughs> I don't believe it for a second. No, but I like school. Right. I like school. I like sitting in the front row. I didn't want to sit in the back and miss what... You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You were fully present in all ears. Yes, I enjoyed school. You were initially thinking about being an illustrator um, and then you sort of drifted into being a textile designer. Well, then I met... In the college that I went to, after I'd... They they took you in those days through different things, like you learnt to make a pot, you did a mm-hmm. sculpture, you did all the different things. Mm-hmm. And then there was this wonderful exotic teacher, Barbara Brown, and um, really I came under her wing and, and did textile design, which we loved doing. And she was a hard taskmaster. If she set us homework and we didn't do it, she wouldn't talk to us the next week. <laughs> And so it was all aimed that we do the course, but then on top of that, we applied to go to the Royal College, which was the place that you had to go to in those days. So Barbara Brown really kind of was absolutely essential to your career path. Oh, she was, yes, essential, and she coached us to get there. When you were thinking about that that time at the Royal College of Art and you obviously, you're doing an awful lot of illustration but then going into textile design as well, what were you gravitating to from a sort of style perspective, I guess? The Beatles were just starting. That would be probably my second year. Right. Because three years at the Royal College and then David Hockney was there. Right. um, Derek Beauchet. Wow. And um, very exotic groups of sculptors. There was Roland Pichet who looked like Marlon Brando. Wow. And and he was doing sculptures that were like Francis Bacon. Yeah. What a brilliant time to be in London. It was a wonderful time. Grace Codlington was the top model walking along the catwalk and Mary Quant was, was going strong with... You know, her wonderful haircut and the mini dress. Talk to me a little bit about how you were at the Royal College of Art and then you, you were introduced to Fold and Tuffin and started right. working with well, those Well, I guys. was at the Royal College of Art and doing um, very colourful, large pop art designs. Mm-hmm. And I, I got a first-class honours degree and, and I suppose you could say I was one of their star pupils in the textiles. And so they took me up to Manchester to sell my work and we showed it to these companies and they all laughed. They said, we can't sell any of that. And why were they saying it was too they said garish? They too extreme. And, right. and every, they showed me a terrible texture that I wouldn't have touched with a barge pole. And so they, they advised me and they said, why don't you go directly to the yeah. Carnaby Street? Yeah. Because Fole and Tuffin were doing wonderful things with Liberty Fabric. Right. They did wonderful trouser outfits right. and... You know, they were the little couple doing things. I went to see them with my designs and they said, oh, we'd we'd love you to do that. So basically I became what's called a converter. I had to find someone who would then print the designs. So we had to go and work out how we could get the designs printed for them. And I did that for three seasons. And then they said, no, you you know, Sandra, you should possibly go on your own or do something. Well, anyway, I met one of their close friends, Sylvia Ayton. We put a collection together. 
And Sylvia used to say to me, Sandra, you look so extreme, you better hide so the buyers don't see. <laughs> um, but You didn't have the pink hair then, did you? Oh, no, no, no. I just, it was I had just, just the lots clothing. of makeup yeah. and everything. Yeah. And, and, oh, and I wore great big turbans and then I stuck feathers on the end of my hair and things like that. Why were you dressing like that? Because when you looked in the mirror, that is what you saw as style. You thought it was about self-expression. You were bucking trends. You were doing your own thing. I wonder where that came from, that sort of independent sort of creative I don't know. thought. I think it just, I think it was going on with groups. I mean, Ozzy had his wonderful show at Chelsea Town Hall. Mm-hmm. Kansai Yamamoto came over mm-hmm. and did a show with mm-hmm. Michael Chow. Mm-hmm. So it was just very trendy and wonderful and then through a wonderful photographer called Annette Green who was working with Marlon Brando and Vanessa Redgrave we got to know Vanessa and she she put some money in that we could open a shop in the Fulham Road wow. so we opened a shop called the Fulham Road Clothes Shop and Sylvia and I did the clothes for it and I remember Penelope Tree coming in and buying an ex- one of our exotic trouser outfits. But it was in the wrong part of Fulham Road, you know, because the trendy bit was just was still needed Road. to be in the King's yeah, Road. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But anyway, but it stayed open for a year. Wow. And in that time, Sylvia was showing me how to make patterns and things like that as well because right. I'd never learnt to make patterns. Right, OK. So anyway, we we did the clothes in that. And then the shop was coming. It was hard work and it was coming to an end. We were still teaching two days a week. And and then Sylvia said, well, this is tough going. I'm leaving. I'm going to go to Wallace. And she became the head designer at Wallace. OK, so she sort of jumped ship a bit. She jumped and ship. And you were on your Todd. And there was I with this shop that was tottering to a close. Right. And I had my little studio in uh, Bayswater but right by Royal Oak Tube Station. And I'd met these very exotic girls called Oksana and Miroslava Pristav, who were <laughs> um, Ukrainian-American. And they were ha- having a trip in America, you know, and it was dream time and they were wearing all my scarves and, and looking very exotic. Oh, Sandra, gosh. you've got to come to America. We'll find someone that will back you and you'll make a fortune. So the penny drop of you going, well... I don't know what else is going on here, but I'm just going to well, take I knew that gut instinct I didn't and want go. To teach, and the two mad girls said, "You've got to come." So I bought a ticket. <laughs> I put a collection together, and I had met the head of English Vogue. Yeah. So she wrote a letter of introduction for to me Diana. to go and see Diana Vreeland in yeah. in New York, and also the woman who was the writer for um, Women's Wear Daily mm. here in. Um, England mm-hmm. wrote about me, and it so happened that when I landed in America, the feature came. There out. was a feature about Ugh. me on the set. At the stars same aligned. It so was meant to be. Aligned. So I made my phone call, and I went to see Deanna Freeland. Talk to me about walking in the door with Deanna Freeland when you when you kind of have got your samples with you, your collection. Well, I'll tell you, know. you what. I had my hair was all tied back in in a flowing Sandra Rhodes scarf and mm-hmm. a little Sandra Rhodes chiffon top with bloomer tr- silk trousers that tucked into pie white beaver boots amazing and Deanna Freeland was so amazing that her personality just knocked you out of the room because she was this had this wonderful hawk nose 
and her face was all shaded red at the edges. And wow. she raved about the clothes. Oh, and she loved and said, them. Said we'll have to photograph them on Natalie Wood. So she knew about, she thought Natalie would be the right ambassador, if you will, at that moment. It was all sort well, of discussed yes, sometimes in that point. They've, in, in, like those magazines, they've always got some star or someone on hand that they're thinking that using yeah. at that time. Yeah. That is a significant life moment. Like I'm just imagining, you know, it couldn't have gone any better. And you leaving there, leaving Vogue New York or Vogue US and sort of punching the air and going, this all looks really good. Like, was, how did you feel? It was quite unbelievable, you know what I mean? And then she said, we're doing, they were doing the photo session. So, you know, she organised the whole photo session and then she phoned up. And were you same... pleased with the images? I love the images, yes. Yeah, and I then she, she phoned up the top boutique at that time, which was Henry Bendel, and said they had to carry them. And wow, the power she, of and it. And then she phoned up another two extremely wealthy ladies that always bought things, Mika Ertigan and um, I forget the other one. Anyway, Mika was married to the top man who ran Atlantic Records. Wow. Proper mover um, shakers. Yeah. So, so they, they these, these proper society girls you know are I mean? stepping out in Zandra so, Rhodes pieces. And then I came back to London and Better start making some product. Make the clothes, yeah. yes. <laughs> Print them and make them. I mean, that's so lovely. And I can really imagine just it's almost tangible what that feeling must have been like for working so hard. Would you say that you kind of make your own luck in life in that way of like, you know, you, you, you've kind of going to America, you know, you, you're stepping out in all of your own designs, people looking at you and sort of saying, you know, if you look like that, then you must be good. You know, it's sort of the power of fashion, I guess. I suppose if you look back, you could say, yes, you made your own luck. On the other hand, it can often work totally in the against you if it's you happen to go somewhere where everyone says, oh, what a weirdo. You, <laughs> you know, it just so happened that... Maybe I was on just a wavelength that they were feeling. And that I they think felt actually, that. you know, the UK probably lead a little bit on the style stakes from the States. We were so leading you, you were at probably that time. just introducing yes. them to something yes. that was a bit zeitgeisty. It was the right but, time. Yeah. And yeah. it's just I was lucky to be on the top of that wave. Yeah. Oh, great, great timing. And, and the Princess of Punk, I mean, where did this sort of name come from that sort of used so much well, in that press? It came and, from um, let me see, that's 1977. There was punk in the air and on the street, but I did a sort of chic version yes. with the, the beaded holes elevated. safety, yes. safety pins yeah, that, yeah, yeah. in fact, Versace did 10 years after me. I remember that Elizabeth Hurley uh, moment. Well, it all started with you, Sandra. And like yeah. you say, kind of really, you know, the true princess of punk and listening to what was happening on the streets, but then taking it to, say, but your Bond Street audience. It and didn't sell. We put it in our, our shop and my lovely partner, Anne Knight, said, well, it's very extreme. If we're going to do something like that, we've got to put it in with conviction. Yeah. So we put it, did out the whole windows with these wonderful punk dresses. And after two weeks, nothing had sold. They were all replaced with chiffon dresses again quickly. <laughs> the windows were changed. But they've now become collector's items. I bet they like have. I when bet they Harold have. Coder at the Metropolitan in New York retired, 
he requested could he have the white punk wedding dress. Oh, so amazing. That's, that's now in um, the Metropolitan. Oh, in New York. Well, they're iconic. I mean, clever you, <laughs> clever you. And, and talking about colour, let's revisit that as well, because obviously, I mean, your embodiment of your designs and, and, and the wonderful early 80s sort of discipline of the, the pink bob, but why did you stick so passionately to utilising colour as a big part of your expression? I just think I suppose I go naturally to doing to doing colour, just the same as in my my penthouse on the top of the museum that I built. I've it's been there. done in yeah. rainbow colours, yeah. you know, and I find it it's happy. And you I'm, don't tire of it. You just you find it a tonic. Just, I can tire. I could say, oh, I've worn too much of this red pair of trousers and this top. I'll wear something else, you know. At the moment, I have a brand new Wallace wardrobe with what I've just made for them. Oh, amazing. So I, I tire and things get pushed to the back, but they're still not going to be plain. <laughs> no word like that could ever be associated with you. Now, listen, so in regards to your travel destinations and journeys, um, I know that you did for a long time sort of split your time between California and, and London um, and Del Mar. Um, but talk to us about all of that time and, the, and, and then that real appetite for going to new territories and finding inspiration and, and, and all of the extensive travel that you've done. Well, most of my fabulous travels have really nearly always been with my close friend Andrew Logan, who who does, as you know, the alternative mm -hmm. Miss World, mm -hmm. and I've made the costumes for the women's half. So we've done wonderful travels, which are basically sketching trips. Right. You know, so that I was I was offered this. Kerry Packer was opening a new channel in in Australia, and he said, "Oh, he was going to fly me over for the opening." So I said to Andrew, "Do you want to come?" So Andrew and I went first of all to Australia. And I wore a grand gold outfit for that, which I donated to one of the Australian museums. Then we went on to India. Wow. And India is always just colourful and wonderful. And so I've Adore always, it. you wear, you wear colour all the time in yeah, India. totally. And what, how do they react to your pink hair in India? They love pink. All the little old ladies love pink hair. <laughs> so we could go to all strange places, like there's a special street in Bombay where there's all the prostitutes and they all come out and they all want to touch your hair. <laughs> I think nowadays they could easily make their hair pink. <laughs> and thinking about other creatives around you at that time, you know, possibly photographers that you were working with, maybe even set designers or people working on your shows, other designers that were inspiring you at that time. If you can dial up um, what was going well, on. I, well, I was one of really the first ones to do very, very exotic shows. We worked with Patrick Libby. I worked with... The um, Ron Link, who directed Divine's plays. I did four gorgeous shows with him, including one in La Jolla, California, that just, I still look at the film and it looks wonderful. And that was 1979 or early 80s, you know. He really directed magical shows. And there was a real sort of storytelling allowed in shows in that time, in the way of sometimes it's not there so much anymore. Oh, I think it's, it's they, the, you know, they're the not the same and... now. And it's wonderful. Go, I went to the Warhol Museum in Pittsburgh and one of my shows was playing because Andy filmed it. Oh, wow. And so it's plays, it plays there, which is great. Talk to us about Andy Warhol then and your, your memories. He was always a person who was just observing. 
Mm. You know, a person who's got an aura that is so great and yet you can't say I had a chat with him. Mm. You know, he was just sort of there. Observing and taking it all in. And you could say in. I was a part of the, the factory because I went in there and I... I knew people in there. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And I watched what was happening. Yeah. How exciting. How exciting. Now, talking about other, you know, very well-loved and, and memorable global talents that have worked with you and worn your, your creations, obviously thinking from my perspective, the Freddie Mercury or uh, lovely Blondie, obviously Diana, Princess of Wales, Bianca Jagger. So who out of those people at that time in the 80s and the 90s really made an impact on you personally? I think dressing Princess Diana was an impact because she looked lovely in the clothes, but they weren't typical of everything else she wore. Mm -hmm. So one always remembers that mm -hmm. the pink dress that she mm -hmm. wore when she announced she was pregnant. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And what was Diana like, Princess of Wales? What was she like? She as was a... very shy. I'd go round to the palace and and take the dress with me and curtsy and then... Um, fit her in the dress and and then uh, I did a white wrap dress that was also in that sale and she said please make sure that the wrap's really deep because she said you can be sure that I'll get out of a car and it'll be photographed and there'll be a there'll be a camera right down filming me in the wrong way you know yeah. so that you know she she was very aware of all those sort very of things conscious of that yes when you were at that point in your design career, your journey with the brand, obviously being recognised by these incredible global talents that are using fashion very much as a way to, yeah, to sort of articulate their uh, journey in and their relevance. Mm. What, what does that feel like to a designer? I know that you're in the midst of it and you're just getting on with doing the job, but there must be moments that you sit back and go, wow, there's like Diana, Princess of Wales is wearing my clothes for an international audience. I've only ever found I think about that afterwards. You know, you like afterwards you think little facets of what happened in my life, they were miracles. I wouldn't like anyone to think I took it for granted. No. But it's only when you look back that and you see... And it's captured in an image as well. And it's captured and you look back and you think that was an important moment, but you don't realise. But maybe, maybe if I'd have thought it was that important... My head would have got so big that I wouldn't have been able to go with what I was doing. So, do you know what I mean? So, you know, it was your journey and you were just sort of busy creating, yes. I suppose, as well. And also making the wedding dress for Princess Anne uh, on the on her wedding to Captain Mark Phillips. Well, I that didn't was, actually must have been... make the wedding dress. Oh, you didn't? Oh, no, no, no. Ah. You all remember her beautiful picture on the front of Vogue in the yes. white dress that yes. looks amazing. yes. English Vogue phoned up and said, we're dressing a very important lady and send some clothes in. And I sent that dress in. And it was kept deadly secret, so it wasn't until only about a week or so before that I realised that, that was the dress. Right. How do you, Zandra Rhodes, describe your own style? I never go out without makeup or jewellery. So right. I always wear... So a it's necklace. a completed look in that way. Well, even if I'm wearing a T-shirt to work in, I will have might be fully made up. Right. And I will have my necklace and usually one or two Andrew Logan brooches. I don't usually have all the rings and things on when I'm working. but So I, I dolly up my T-shirt or my winter woolly, if that's what, if it's winter. 
Um, but when I go out, I I I tend to dress up, and that and that will always be in a Sandra Rose outfit. Now, if I'm trying to sell a product <laughs> and I don't believe in it enough to wear to it, wear it, then what am I designing for? Exactly. No, you need to. But you're so the biggest ambassador if, of your own brand. If if you're selling a brand, then you are representing that brand. One thousand percent. Now. There are outfits that would look better on other people. But as such, though, I always wear my own brand. So, I mean, also just the joy of the textile design, um, you know, changing fabric into something else. And obviously, you know, we're at a time within fashion that sustainability is such an important uh, part of the narrative in regards to longevity. Right. And I love that you, you in so many ways, you archive work and you can use it again and again. I remember seeing something recently about Tutankhamun's leopard that was a recurring example that you can celebrate from something you did oh, 20 I'm years making, ago. I'm making clothes out of all the bits of fabric that I've got left over. And then you wear something, you go to the cupboard and you can get something out and you can just wear it differently. I think it's a sin if you've got to think that each season mm -hmm. you're going to completely change so that you're not going to use those clothes. Mm -hmm. I think it's terrible. You know, you know, you have a real understanding through many decades of, you know, where the industry has travelled to. Where do you see us going in the short term? Well, I've also noticed, which is very interesting, that it takes about three years for each decade to take character. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So if I'm typical of, say, if I'm typical of the 70s, early 70s, mm -hmm. it then shifts and maybe then goes on to Vivian Westwood mm -hmm. and then it shifts again and it goes on to Thierry Mugler. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. so, now, that doesn't mean that people then aren't still wearing what would be worn of mine. But it's just a different aspect and you wear it with a different feeling. I'm, I, I'm not a prophet, so I don't quite know, but that's the like that. sort of thing that happens. I like that. And, and obviously your work lends itself to other disciplines. Um, and I know you've worked recently with doing a 26-piece homeware collection with IKEA. It's all available globally. You know, do you love the fact that your brand aesthetic can be utilised and realised in so many different industries. I think industries. it's a great honour. I think it's wonderful to be able to do something to get to enough people in. In the IKEA range, we did a length of fabric that you could cut out along the dotted line and make it into an outfit. Oh, amazing. We did a film of that. And then you've got a different bit of fabric for a screen or we have cushions, you know. And it's great to have things that people can can use in different ways. Obviously, being at the top of your game for that amount of time, it carries a, a quite a lot of responsibility. And, you know, there is the demand for constant new creation. Have you ever been tempted to say, I'm done? Or is there just this sort of, you know, I will always continue to design, I will always continue? Like, were there any point you look back where you think, I think I'm going to throw in the towel? and walk away from this. Yes, you go through ups and downs. You could be depressed or you don't know where it's going. But also you're but a creative. That you know, it leads you to other things, like whether you do, you, you get round to doing a book about your work. Or mm -hmm. I mean, I got round to founding the museum and no sooner had I founded the museum than I then got asked in America to do opera. So I did 
I did three different operas where I was able to use my prints and work them out for like the magic flute and Aida. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I love that. that. Um, so you don't really know where the journey's taking you. You don't know but... where the journey takes you, just that the journey's taking you to somewhere. Yeah. Let's say it takes a downturn. I don't think you have to look at it as the end of everything. It could be that I do a wonderful sketching trip with Andrew or I've been on a sketching trip with a guy called Norman Aykroyd who's like England's constable. He does these wonderful mm. etchings of the coast of Ireland. And so you're lucky enough then, maybe it gives you a respite to re-look at yourself and think, right, I'll do a book or I'll get on with something. And the Design Museum, that was that a real labour of love? I mean, you obviously found this landmark, this sort of, you know, bit of Bermondsey Street, and you went out on a limb and created something that has really become an institution. Well, I felt at that time that textile designers weren't getting enough credit, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. People don't always give textile designers mm -hmm. enough credit mm -hmm. for what they do. Like, mm -hmm. for example, if you look at a, cha a gorgeous Chanel suit mm -hmm. by Karl Lagerfeld. Mm -hmm. Yes, he was brilliant enough to give it its shape, mm -hmm. but and he was brilliant enough to choose the weave. But an invisible weaver created that amazing weave mm -hmm. that made that suit that gorgeous. Mm -hmm. So... Everyone's equally important. Yes, I love that. And who helped you realise that dream? How did it all happen? I suppose my friends collectively. You know, people believing enough into in what you do, saying they want to wear it, or people particularly wanting to wear the things. And how long have you been in the penthouse above there now? Because I came there for Hillary's memorial. I bought the building. And it was just amazing. I bought the building in '95, and I thought I'd get a government grant to do the museum, but in fact. I was turned down. But my boyfriend, who was a self-made person that ended up running cinemas, Salah Hassanin, he said, well, you can't give up now. We'll get another architect to work with your architect that you've chosen and we'll build nine flats on the top. Wow. And we'll pre-sell eight of them. And that paid for building the building. Ah, oh, Salah so was a very clever man, wasn't he? Oh, he was a very clever man. And I couldn't have done it without him. So your favourite show of all time, your favourite fashion show that you put on of all time? Oh, gosh. I think probably the show that I did in La Jolla in, in the 70s, which I believe is sometimes on the TV, right? which was very romantic. There recently I've been sent a picture of the wonderful Pat Cleveland, who did oh. my very first show in Angelo Dongia's apartment. And... Um, I think it's a museum in Chile, wanted to know more details about it. So it's very interesting. The adventure takes me now to lots of different places, now that I'm a grey-haired old lady with pink eyes. <laughs> <laughs> and are you still disciplined in regards to, I know you were saying when you're travelling, you do a, a, a discipline that you're sort of illustrating, you're drawing something every day. Are you still doing yes, that? Yes, when I'm travelling. But I haven't travelled for a while, so I'm not doing a drawing every day at the moment. Just in regards to this sort of sense of Britishness, what does being British mean to Zandra Rose? We talk about the 60s, we talk about that kind of emerging music talent of the time being the Beatles, we talk about you sort of taking that, you know, princess of punk aesthetic to New York. You know, it's a it's a very British story if you're thinking about your life in film. Yes. Um, how, what does it feel to be British to, to Dame Zandra Rhodes? I think I'm proud to be British. I think we've got a lot in character. I think the saddest thing that's ever occurred is separating from Europe. 
because we're a little tiny island off of the edge of Europe. You know, I think it was a terrible, terrible mistake. And it's going to take a lot of years to rectify, not within our lifetime, because Europe won't want us back, sadly. Some quick fire for you here. Oh, dear. Earl Grey <laughs> or Darjeeling? Earl Grey. Red or white wine? Neither. <laughs> you do not drink? Ah, no, that's I go why to you look so amazing and, and, and youthful there, Sandra. So oh, a, a truffle crisp or a bag of chips? Truffle crisp. Teacup or teapot? Oh, teapot. Matisse or Monet? Oh, <laughs> that's difficult. That is, gosh, that is equally difficult. <laughs> You've got to choose um, one. That's the Matisse. Game. Butterflies or dragonflies? Dragonflies. Parla palm or zebra plant? Zebra plant. Orange or pink? Pink. <laughs> India or San Diego? India. A Chevy or a Volkswagen camper? Volkswagen camper. <laughs> Good choice. I had one of those ones. I went across America in one. Oh, did you? They can't be replaced. No. They're a Volkswagen camper. Yeah. But they're practical. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're a home on wheels and yeah. you know, they're made for memory making, aren't they? I went across America in one. It was wonderful. Talk to us very quickly about the commemorative UK postal stamp featuring your dresses celebrating the best of British fashion. When did all that happen? Oh, that was fun to do. That would have to be at least, what, 15 years ago? Mm -hmm. They approached me to do it. It's fabulous. You know, it's a great honour to be on a postage stamp. Yeah. Well, I mean, it surely sends all of that message. You know, you're a, you're an iconic <laughs> no, institution. They don't use them now, do they? I mean... <laughs> My love, what, what's your driving force? What sort of keeps you going in the way of, like we were discussing, you know, these sort of 55 years at the top of your game, just constantly well, now, recreating? I'd say now it's really trying to put everything in order so that it can go to various museums. A certain amount will go to the Fashion Textile Museum. I'm now visiting different museums across the world and the UK, which I feel should have examples of what I do. So it's now trying... You do all that work and you're surrounded by it so that you can't move and then you've got to work out where is it going to go. <laughs> so you're going to be very busy archiving I'm busy, everything. I'm busy archiving and trying to work out the best places for different things to be. Have you been to Royal Ascot, our wonderful hosts of Personal Threads? Um, obviously, they're thrilled that you're one of our guests. But if you haven't been to Royal Ascot, we'd love to invite you next year. I'll accept then, please. Perfect. Oh. <laughs> I can't wait to see what you'll I'll be wearing. i planning my hat. Yes, quite right. So... Um, just looking back over those 55 years, just last question, where does your heart take you when you think about that journey, this incredible life that you've lived? I think as a designer, you've got to be grateful that you're still there. Yeah. Oh, my mother, my mother had the best saying, be careful who you step on going up because you might have to lean on them coming down. Oh, I love that. What a perfect way to end our <laughs> podcast. Gigantic pleasure to speak to you. You are such an icon and I really enjoyed speaking to you for Personal Threads. Thank you very much, I've Sandra. I've had such a lovely time. Thank you.